0: Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning on going into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Redd, myself, an internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. I'm your host, Walker Redd, back again for another episode with Emily Lau. We're so fortunate to have Emily Lau here with us to go over some of our cardiology topics. If you heard our last episode, we talked about heart failure in a general sense and how to manage patients who are presenting for the first time with heart failure symptoms or are having an exacerbation of heart failure. As we clarified what was important in the acute since then, we We want to focus today on how to manage these patients when they're admitted to the hospital or as outpatients. Everything we talk about during this episode is going to be evidence-based approaches to treating patients with any type of heart failure. We're going to introduce a mnemonic. We think it'll be really useful. So let's go ahead and run the list. So in introducing our cases today, I'm going to give you two general representations of patients you might see with heart failure. One patient would be a 73-year-old woman with obesity, long-standing uncontrolled hypertension, and known heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and an EF of 65%. Another example would be a 73-year-old man with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease status post cabbage three years ago, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction secondary to ischemic cardiomyopathy, who's coming in with an EF of 25%. Imagine both these patients presenting with typical heart failure symptoms like dyspnea and exertion, bilateral lower extremity edema, and weight gain. And we're going to focus on what you will do for these patients when they're admitted to the hospital. Emily, before we dive into the details of the management as outlined by our helpful mnemonic, how do you think about the etiologies driving these presentations?
1: As we recall from our last episode, every single time a patient comes in with a new diagnosis of heart failure, it's important to try to understand why they are in heart failure. For patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, we generally think of patients who are older, more frequently have hypertension, are overweight, and more often to be women in contrast to patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So some of the major contributors, as I've mentioned, are hypertension, aging, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, and kidney disease. And so for HEF-PEF, or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, we're really talking about a constellation of different comorbidities. For patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or hef There are a number of different etiologies. The most common cause of HEF-REF is coronary artery disease or ischemic heart disease, so it's always important to rule that out. And then other diseases like myocarditis or chemotherapies such as doxorubicin, thyroid disease, alcohol, or even idiopathic or genetic causes of cardiomyopathy can all lead to
0: HEF-REF. I think we all sort of talk about the disease progression in terms of symptomatology, and could you tell us a little bit about the classification system that's widely used for these patients?
1: The most widely used is the New York Heart Association classification system, and basically it goes from class 1 to class 4. Class 1 refers to a patient who really has no symptoms, and they're able to do their day-to-day activities without any issues. And then as the disease progresses to having minimal symptoms, which we might say is class two, having symptoms that affect their everyday activity, we say would be class three. And then finally, folks who have very severe limitations in their activity, even symptoms at rest, we say those patients have class four New York Heart Association heart failure.
0: Now that we've talked about etiologies and how we classify the severity of symptoms, let's just start to frame generally how we're going to talk about the management. This is a long mnemonic we're going to go through. It's not something you need to have down off the top of your head, but it's something that you can store so that when you admit these patients and take care of them in the inpatient setting, you don't let anything slip through the cracks. And then we'll touch on at the end some important aspects of how we take care of these patients as outpatients as well. I want to give credit to two of my co-residents, David and Lauren, for coming up with this mnemonic, Panic Dr. Air. You'll hear these therapies in conjunction with one another called GDMT, or Guideline Directed Medical Therapy. We're not going to go into the specifics of all the excellent named cardiology trials here. We're just going to summarize for our listener what goes into each of these categories. So to start things off, we're going to talk about preload and how we address preload, typically with diuresis.
1: As you recall from our last episode, we spent a little bit of time talking about diuresis. And this is really the mainstay of management for all patients with heart failure, because oftentimes they are coming in wet, meaning they have excess volume. And the way to get rid of the excess volume in general is through medications called diuretics. So there are a few types of diuretics that we often use, including furosemide, torsemide, or bumetanide. They often come in either intravenous or oral options. In general, what we like to do is get a sense every day as to whether or not a patient still has a lot of extra volume. So we do this using physical exam. Is their jugular venous pressure elevated? Do they have crackles on their lung exam? Do they have peripheral edema? And if we ultimately decide that the patient is still volume overloaded, we say that we'd like to go ahead and continue to diurese them with one of the agents that I mentioned. It's important to understand every day how much fluid you're trying to get off of them. So we will typically say that we want a total body balance goal of negative one liter, for example. And that means that we want to be able to diurese this patient at least one liter more than what they are taking in either by food or by drink. It's important also to take into consideration what's happening with their electrolytes. As you might know, whenever you diurese somebody, the potassium and the magnesium also gets excreted by the kidneys concomitantly. So if you're diureseing somebody, you have to be thinking about repleting their potassium and magnesium at the same time.
0: So that's the P in panic doctor air preload. I just want to touch on a quick anecdote when we were working together. So when I was working with Emily, when she was attending on the general medical service, I had to ask her for a patient with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Is it really true that we basically just diures these patients? I think about all of the other therapies we can offer for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction?
1: I think that that is such an important distinction. Traditionally, we have been studying heart failure with reduced ejection fraction for quite some time. So over many, many decades, we have come to learn that there are a number of medications that actually improve mortality and prolong survival in patients with HEF-REF. Unfortunately, HEF-PEF, which is actually exceedingly common and is projected to be more common than hef in the next few decades. It hasn't been such an easy story. We've been doing trial after trial trying to figure out and understand whether or not there are therapies that might be able to reduce mortality in our HEF-PEF patients. And yet, time and time again, none of these therapies work. So it is true that at present, the only therapy we have for patients with HEF-PEF is really to diurese them and to improve their symptoms of volume overload.
0: So let's go to the A, afterload. Tell us about how you think about managing that.
1: Afterload is an important part of stroke volume. And if your afterload is too high, this can often create a situation where the heart has to pump against very high pressures. This can lead to reduced cardiac output. So the mechanism of afterload reduction is to promote vasodilation so as to improve stroke volume. This is especially important in patients with severe hypertension or valvular disease like acute mitral regurgitation or acute aortic regurgitation.
0: I think there's lots of different agents we can use, but what are some of the common ones?
1: The most common ones you'll probably hear about are ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. ACE inhibitors might include something like lisinopril. Angiotensin receptor blocker might include a medication like losartan. And one of the newer medications on the block are the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors or ARNIs. And the other name for it would be salcubitrol valsartan. Now, it's important to know that all of these agents are useful for lowering blood pressure. So they can be used in patients with hypertension as a way to lower blood pressure. But they have been studied specifically in patients with HEF-REF as a way to actually improve mortality. Remember, these medicines can be used in patients with HEF-PEF, but they have not been shown to actually prolong survival in those patients.
0: Excellent. So we've gone through... P, A, and now we're to N, and that's the neurohormonal blockade. And so tell us about some of those options for medication and what the mechanism is. So
1: what things that we've learned about heart failure patients is that the body senses that the heart is failing. And as a result, it actually amps up the adrenergic system. So you have an excess of catecholamines, an excess of adrenaline as an effort to be able to increase the contractility, heart rate, and basically the whole cardiovascular system. In the short term, when somebody is in an acute heart failure exacerbation, that is extremely helpful. However, Long term, we've discovered that the activation of the adrenergic system can actually be deleterious to the heart if it continues uninterrupted. One of the mechanisms of trying to improve mortality in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is to really try to target this adrenergic system or the catecholamine system. We do that through a number of different medications, for instance, beta blockers. Beta blockers actually typically reduce contractility, which sort of seems counterintuitive in patients with heart failure because you're actually trying to increase their cardiac output. And that's absolutely true. In somebody who's in acute heart failure, you do not want to give them a beta blocker. But once you've gotten them settled down you actually want to be able to try to stop all of this excess catecholamine surge that can be deleterious long-term. And so giving a beta blocker has been shown to actually improve mortality in these patients long-term. Other medications like ACE inhibitors and ARBs or ARNIs also help to prolong survival by inhibiting aldosterone, which allows for decreased adverse myocardial remodeling. And then other medicines like spironolactone and aplerinone are also part of this group of neurohormonal
0: blockers. Great. That provides the perfect segue to the next letter in our mnemonic, which is contractility. So, In those patients who we may be holding the beta blocker, because we're worried they may be either going into or in cardiogenic shock, let's just talk about some of our options there.
1: Absolutely. Like we talked about last time, for somebody who's in acute heart failure, and in particular, the patients who are wet and cold or dry and cold, so the folks who are not perfusing, we often need to add on a medication called an inotrope to be able to increase the heart's intrinsic contractility. There are a number of agents, including milrinone, dobutamine, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. These medications all are classified as inotropes. Now they have a few differences. Milrinone and dobutamine not only increase inotropy, but they also vasodilate, so they reduce afterload. And so they're also called inodilators. Dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine increase contractility but also increase afterload. so they're called inopressors. And depending on the situation, you'll choose one agent over another, and that can be tailored when a patient is, for instance, in the intensive care unit. These medications really are meant to treat patients who are in acute cardiogenic shock. This is the time when patients really, their heart is really failing, and these are the types of patients that we're not thinking about putting on neurohormonal blockade just yet. We're trying to get them out of shock.
0: Great. That completes panic, the first part of our mnemonic. So preload, afterload, neurohormonal blockade, contractility. Now we're going to go into the second half of the mnemonic, which is Dr. D-R-A-I-R, For these, we're just going to touch on these briefly. Oftentimes, these are a little bit less related to the acute setting and a little bit more things that you want to make sure you're keeping in mind. So D stands for devices. This was something when I was a medical student, I did not really know a whole lot about and I showed up to residency. And sometimes I was focused on the medicines in the acute setting and didn't think as much about when it may be appropriate for a patient to have device placed.
1: So I'd like to separate devices into two main categories. The first are either defibrillators or cardiac resynchronization therapies, and we'll talk about that. And the second are mechanical circulatory support. Defibrillators and cardiac resynchronization therapy, these are device therapies meant to take care of patients who have chronic heart failure and are stable. So we know that patients with an LV ejection fraction less than 35% actually have an increased risk of sudden cardiac death. So it's extremely important, actually, to be able to protect protect them from sudden cardiac death. And the way we do that is by implanting an implantable cardioverter defibrillator or an ICD. So anybody with an EF less than 35% really should be getting an ICD. Now, we've also learned more recently that patients who have low ejection fraction and also have a wide QRS, particularly those with something called a left bundle branch block with a QRS duration greater than 150 milliseconds and sometimes even greater than 120 milliseconds, really benefit from this concept called cardiac resynchronization therapy. When you have a left bundle branch block, your heart actually starts to activate from the right side first before activating the left. But the normal heart activates from the left first before going to the right. So cardiac resynchronization therapy or CRT therapy is a way of pacing both ventricles. So we call it a biventricular pacing system so as to activate the left side of the heart before the right side of the heart to try to basically restore more normal heart function. And that has also been shown to improve mortality in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So those are the device therapies that I think about for patients with chronic heart failure. Now, the second category of device therapies is mechanical circulatory support, and these are for folks like the ones who are in the intensive care unit, as we were talking about with the inotropes. So these are folks who are really, really sick, and sometimes medications like dobutamine and milrinone or dopamine, all of these inotropes are not enough to be able to help these patients. Their hearts are so weak, and so in that setting, we might be able to implant a type of device that can help actually augment cardiac output. Some of the devices you might hear about are intra-aortic balloon pump, impellas, tandems, ventricular assist devices, or even something called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO. These are really heavy-duty interventions that we use for some of our sickest patients. And then finally, if we're not able to help somebody get better with all of the medicines that we've been talking about, we might have to start thinking about listing these patients for heart transplant.
0: Great. So D, we just did for devices. And then R, the other half of it is rhythm, which is actually kind of related and we can keep brief. But basically, one big thing is still remembering the ICD for EF of less than 35%, as we just said. What are some of the other things you think about?
1: Other things I think about for rhythm is atrial fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia are exceedingly common rhythms that are co-associated with heart failure. So you might have to be treating those rhythms alongside all the other things that you're doing.
0: Perfect. Let's jump into the air a-I-R, part of the mnemonic. A stands for anticoagulation and antiplatelets. What are some indications why patients would be on those medicines?
1: Generally speaking, antiplatelet therapy like aspirin or clopidogrel, ticagrelor are used in patients with coronary disease or have had previous coronary intervention like a stent. And then anticoagulation like warfarin or some of the newer direct oral anticoagulants like apixaban or rivaroxaban are used for patients with atrial fibrillation.
0: Great. So A was anticoagulation and antiplatelet. Our last two, which is iron and then risk reduction, are actually both really exciting places where we have some new evidence. So I is for iron. I did not know about this until recently. Emily, tell us a little bit about who we should be checking iron studies in.
1: One of the things we've discovered is that many of our heart failure patients are actually iron deficient, and they may or may not be concomitantly anemic. But we found that by repleting their iron with IV iron, we have seen significant improvements in their functional status, six-minute walk distance, and even quality of life.
0: Great. So remember to send iron studies when you admit patients to, and then replete that. And then the last letter is R for risk reduction.
1: Many of these patients also have coronary disease, so it's important to think about secondary prevention therapies for patients with coronary disease like statins. And then a newer medication that is getting a lot of interest specifically for heart failure patients are the SGLT2 inhibitors. So a couple of examples of SGLT2 inhibitors are dipagliflozin or impagliflozin. And we're still learning a lot about these medicines. They were historically diabetes medicines, but we're finding actually that they also somehow reduce hospitalizations in heart failure patients. So more to come there, but I think they're a very promising therapy.
0: Well, wow. Thank you for taking us through all of that. And we saw summarize once more. Panic Dr. Air stands for preload, afterload, neurohormonal blockade, contractility, devices, rhythm, anticoagulation slash antiplatelet, iron, and risk reduction. Now, just to touch briefly, this episode is mainly focused on the inpatient setting, but just as important to that, probably more important, and where patients spend most of their time actually is in the outpatient setting.
1: The inpatient to outpatient transition is probably one of the most vulnerable times for any heart failure patient. As you can imagine, in the hospital, we control almost everything, how much somebody is eating, drinking, We're weighing them every single day. Life is very different outside of the hospital. So it is extremely important to talk extensively to your patient about the things that they need to be doing and also to ensure very close follow-up with one of their heart failure providers. So for instance, things that I advise my patients to do as they're leaving the hospital, they need to be weighing themselves daily. They need to be keeping very close track of what types of foods they eat and how much fluid they're taking in every single day. In general, I recommend that they take in no more than two grams of salt and two liters of fluid every single day. But as you can imagine, that can be really hard to do outside of the hospital. The other thing to think about is that you want them to pay attention to their own symptoms. Are they? to get more shorter breath? Or they are they not able to do some of the activities that they typically can do? All of these things are warning signs and things that they absolutely need to report to their physicians.
0: Excellent. So we've talked about a lot today. What are the summary points that you want our listeners to take away, Emily?
1: I'd like for everyone to take away knowing the differences between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The etiologies are different. And the therapies are really quite different. So it's important to make that distinction when you're admitting these patients and taking care of these patients in the clinic. And finally, as we just mentioned, it's extraordinarily important that these patients have very close follow-up. They are often very tenuous and managing fluid and salt intake in the outpatient setting is really hard. So it's important when you discharge these patients that they have a heart failure clinic follow-up appointment set up before they leave.
0: Great. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Emily. It is truly a privilege of ours to have you on the podcast. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please join us next time to run the list.